I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today we have a case for you. As always, the case that we're going to present is presented anonymously. That means that the name of the patient has been changed. We disguise the identity of the owners and the veterinarian. And key details of the case have been changed that won't alter the outcome, but will help disguise the identity of the patient. Got to protect our peeps. We do. JJ, tell us about our case. Meow. Ben, you left the cat in here. (laughs) (laughs) And she wants out. Meow. Do you hear her? Yeah. Are you coming to get her? Meow. Ben, can you hear me? Why can't you get her? But I'm not wearing pants. (laughs) (laughs) Can we leave that part in? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. I stepped away for a second. What did I miss? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it'll be a surprise when you hear it. (laughs) Ben, can you come get the cat? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I can. (laughs) It's a good kitty. Okay. Okay. You're going to tell us about the case. Yeah, I am. (laughs) Okay. Daisy is an eight-year-old female miniature poodle with a five-day history of lethargy. Uh, The owners became more concerned yesterday, however, when they noticed that the patient was hesitant to move around and was breathing heavily. The owner has not noted any coughing or sneezing, and the pet is still eating and drinking. The patient does not have a history of any previous medical problems. She does take an oral monthly heartworm prevention and a topical monthly flea intake preventative. Well, what are we finding on physical exam? The patient is quiet, alert, and responsive. There is an increased respiratory effort and an increased respiratory rate that is obvious even at rest. Hmm. The mucous membranes are pale pink. The heart sounds are muffled. There is no audible heart murmur or arrhythmia. The abdomen palpates normally, and the rectal temperature is normal at 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. The patient is able to ambulate without assistance, but prefers to sit down and not move around the room. Okay. Well, I I don't like the fact that the patient just wants to sit there and not move around. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they're pretty out of breath if that's happening. It's good that the mucous membranes are still hanging in there at a pink color and not worse than that yet. So that's good. That's good. We've got increased respiratory effort and increased respiratory rate. So obviously we're going to focus on the on the respiratory tract here. So after our physical exam, we need to build some preliminary differentials just so that we know where to go with our testing. We're definitely going to want some testing on this case. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some just general differentials for dyspnea. So increased uh, respiratory effort, increased respiratory rate, difficulty breathing. I'll just name one out there first. um, Pulmonary edema. That's fluid in the lungs. Typically, we see that from congestive heart failure. 
with that, in dogs, usually there will be a heart murmur tipping us off that there is, you know, an underlying heart issue, but not all of the time. Not mm-hmm. all of the time. Most of the time in dogs, but not always. My kitty cat patients have been more common in my experience to to have a heart problem with no murmur, but it can happen in dogs too. Another one might be pleural effusion, which mm-hmm. is fluid between the lungs and body wall. So like top of our list, fluid somewhere in the chest, whether it's inside the lungs or outside the lungs. Somewhere it ain't supposed to be. Yep, where it's not allowed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pneumonia could cause these symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, pulmonary neoplasia. Mm-hmm. Yep. So a mass someplace in, in the chest. Uh, definitely. Pulmonary thromboembolism, which is like a blood clot in the lungs. Um, pneumothorax. Yep. Yep. So like a collapsed lung. And I think we're going to kind of stop there. because It's really impossible to list all of the differentials for increased respiratory effort, you know, on a podcast episode. <laughs> I mean, there's like a gigantic list, but like, I think that kind of covers the top reasons that you'll see it happening. So mm-hmm. I think this is a good start. Mm-hmm. Essentially, though, we just are going to need more information. So uh, we need to run some tests. Man, if I could pick anything in the world to do with this little dog, I would love to use the ultrasound machine to perform a TFAST. That's like a quick scan of the thorax first, because sometimes that gives you an answer like right off the bat. And in patients that are super unstable with their breathing, it's potentially way safer than taking x-rays because it doesn't require, well, really any positioning and is much less stressful. But if the ultrasound machine didn't tell me, you know, what I, what I was dealing with or what I was looking for, then definitely radiographs. And then if we straight up don't have an ultrasound machine, which is the, the boat that a lot of people are in, radiographs uh, would be then on first on my list. Um, they're going to be super helpful, but we do have to be careful because taking radiographs of dyspneic animals can kill them. And we've mm-hmm. mentioned this a couple times before on the podcast. So uh, what I would do is go ahead and get some lateral radiographs initially because positioning a patient in lateral recumbency is a little bit less stressful than like rolling them onto their back would be. And I would look at those lateral radiographs first before I did any other types of views. Now, for diagnosis, you'll need to get orthogonal views. That's, you know, a 90 degree angle. Okay, but but you don't have to get them all at one time. So we don't want to kill the patient while trying to to get tests. So, you know, I might start with some lateral radiographs, wait, see what we find (laughs) and then make a decision about whether it's safe enough to go ahead and and roll that pet. Or uh, you could also try to see if the pet would let you do a DV, a dorsoventral position, instead of a, a VD, a ventrodorsal position. DV position has to do with the, the pet is just sitting on their, uh, or laying on their sternum. Uh, so it's a little bit easier of a position to sit in when you can't breathe well. Now there are some things on x-ray you might not be able to see as well with that positioning, but it you know, it's a place to start. Yeah. Yeah. I might add too that if you have the ability to hook up your oxygen anesthesia machine in radiology mm-hmm. to have it on the ready to kind of give the patient some oxygen in between mm-hmm. shots, that would be great. Or if you don't, at least have them on oxygen 
try to get them in their containers really quick and then come back out and get them back on oxygen if they need it because that kind of seems to help sometimes because they without it they can kind of have issues a lot faster yeah absolutely that's a great point so we need some imaging of the chest any other tests we would want to perform I think imaging of the chest is going to tell us the most information, but some other things would be collecting a minimum database. So a complete blood count, a chemistry profile, and a urinalysis. And that's going to tell us whether the patient might have any concurrent illnesses, or sometimes we can find some red flags that tell us where to look to understand the cause of the dyspnea. A heartworm test is not a bad idea, depending on your geographic location. Here in the Southeast, clinical heartworm disease is unfortunately pretty common, and sometimes pet owners are not super forthcoming about things like missed doses or, you know, whether they have them on prevention at all. So I think running a heartworm test in this situation is probably a good idea, too, if you live where we live. Yeah, and down here, the mosquito is the state bird, as I like to say. <laughs> yeah, Any testing is going to depend on how stable the patient is. Mm-hmm. In this case, Daisy was stable on room air. Her mucous membranes are still pink, though her respiratory rate is elevated. The patient is oxygenating adequately to consider moving forward with the testing. Um, sometimes the patients we see are much worse off, and we have to be more careful about which tests we do and how much we do at once. Yeah, yeah. So for this patient, Daisy, what happened next? Uh, the patient was placed in a makeshift oxygen cage. A treatment area cage was rigged with an anesthetic tubing attached to the bars on the front. The front of the cage was covered with towels to keep the oxygen inside the cage. While this approach isn't necessarily perfect, it's good enough and sometimes all you can do. I have super done this um, mm -hmm. because, I mean, how often is it that you're working at a clinic with an official oxygen cage? I mean, rare. it's been, yeah, it's been uncommon in my experience. So, so yeah, I mean... Do, do, is this a 100% oxygen environment? No, nope, it's not. <laughs> you Are you maybe wasting oxygen? Yeah, you are for sure. But like, it's what you can do, right? Don't light a match. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think this is reasonable. The only downside with the makeshift oxygen cage is that because you kind of have to keep a towel over the front, you can't see the patient as well you know mm -hmm. so i when i'm utilizing this approach i make sure that it's not for ones that are like super dying right now kind of a thing you know mm -hmm. like um and also uh i you know walk by and gonna peek at the patient like pretty often you know mm -hmm. so that is the the one disadvantage but if you don't have another means of getting the oxygen sometimes you just got to do what you got to do and providing flow by oxygen, sometimes the patients get pissed off. They're like, stop putting that near my face, mm -hmm. Superman. <laughs> and then if they get stressed, then that's going to make things worse. So sometimes the makeshift cages is what we got to deal with. The clinic did not have good access to an ultrasound, so radiographs were selected as the first diagnostic step. Daisy's thoracic radiographs show a pleural effusion, which is most prominent on the right side of the thorax. And Daisy's veterinarian is worried there may be something they are missing on the radiograph, so they sent out a stat request for a radiologist review. I love the fact that this veterinarian is sending x-rays out to the radiologist to be reviewed. I think that this is a just an awesome capability 
that's really underutilized. And, you know, in this day and age, almost everyone is going to have digital x-ray. Not everyone, but almost everyone. And this type of diagnostic testing allows us to just magically send the radiographs to a specialist to be reviewed. And I mean, a lot of the time, if you send a stat request, it'll be back within 30 minutes or an hour. I mean, heck, like that, that is amazing. If you don't know 100% what's going on or, you know, maybe it's the middle of the night and you've been up all night on ER and you're stressed that you're going to make a mistake. I mean, you can send that out kind of like as a security blanket. Or sometimes if you just really just don't know what the hell is going on, you know, so sometimes mm -hmm. sometimes that helps. So the veterinarian, I think, is doing a great job with sending these out to just double check while the patient is in oxygen. She's stable. We've got time. So what did the radiologist find? So they found moderate pleural effusion, most prominent in the right hemithorax, causing retraction of the lung lobes and effacement with cardiac silhouette. No evidence of pulmonary nodules is identified. The visible portions of the cardiac silhouette appear normal. A cost for the effusion is not identified in the images provided, and sampling of the pleural fluid is recommended for further characterization. The radiologist has confirmed that pleural effusion is present. What is pleural effusion? Okay, so pleural effusion is the presence of an abnormal amount of fluid in the pleural space. The pleural space is roughly the area between the body wall and the lungs. So the pleura is a membrane made of a thin layer of mesothelial cells, and it coats the surface of the lungs, the body wall, and the diaphragm. The parietal pleura covers the chest wall, diaphragm, and mediastinum and the visceral pleura covers the lung surface. The pleural space is that potential space that exists between the visceral pleura and the parietal pleura. Now, normally, the pleural space contains a very small amount of fluid, like just a few milliliters, that serves as a lubricant for respiration. That allows the the pleura to slip past one another easily so that when you're breathing, it's not like, like sandpaper, you know, they have to like slide <laughs> back and forth, mm -hmm. slide back and forth. Uh, but uh, accumulation of an abnormal amount of fluid in the pleural space, so pleural effusion, occurs when there is an imbalance between fluid formation by the parietal pleura and fluid resorption by the visceral pleura. And this can occur for a few reasons. It can occur if there is increased capillary hydrostatic pressure, if there is decreased capillary oncotic pressure, if there's increased capillary permeability, and or if there's impaired lymphatic drainage. Essentially, the patient with pleural effusion is either producing more fluid than normal or producing a normal amount of fluid but not able to drain it effectively. So. We've talked briefly about the clinical signs that we noted in Daisy's case. Let's go ahead and review all of the clinical signs that might be present in a dog or a cat who has pleural effusion. Clinical signs of pleural effusion vary depending on the underlying cause, how fast the fluid is building up or how much fluid is present in the pleural space. Most of the clinical signs are respiratory and include tachypnea, which is an increased respiratory rate, shallow respiration, increased respiratory effort, open mouth breathing in cats and coughing. Sometimes pleural effusion is chronic, and in those cases, signs of weight loss, decreased appetite, 
and lethargy or depression may occur. Physical examination may reveal uh, cyanosis or blue color of the gums or tongue, pale mucous membranes, dyspnea, abdominal pain, abdominal distension if effusion is present in the abdomen as well, evidence of trauma in large lymph nodes, and fever. Lung and heart sounds may be muffled, and pets may also be reluctant to lie down. And when we're examining the respiratory system, it's important to note whether the difficulty breathing is encountered during inspiration, breathing in, or expiration, breathing out. Animals with noisy breathing during inspiration, also called strider, or difficulty breathing on inspiration, usually have an upper airway obstruction or disease in the pleural space, like pleural effusion, a pneumothorax or collapsed lung, or something like a mediastinal mass. Patients with difficulty breathing during expiration usually have like a chronic bronchitis or asthma, something happening lower down in the airway. If a dog or a cat has an increase in inspiratory effort, but no strider, then you can go ahead and make a presumptive diagnosis of pleural space disease. So let's review some updated differentials now that we know that pleural fusion is creating our patient's clinical signs. There are a lot of differentials for pleural effusion, like a lot. (laughs) So we're going to just talk about the general groups of things that can create a pleural effusion. Those include things like space-occupying lesions, so masses, either cancerous or non-cancerous, things like fungal granulomas, you know, that sort of thing, anything that's taking up space here in the system. Heart failure. Coagulation disorders, so bleeding disorders, infectious causes like bacterial diseases, fungal diseases, or viral diseases. Anything that can make the protein very low in the body could potentially cause an effusion. Diaphragmatic hernias, vasculitis, that's blood vessel inflammation. If we have trauma to the chest or if there's some sort of a foreign body stuck in the chest. And these are just broad categories. So like each of those categories I mentioned, um, some of them might have as many as like 50 things that fit within that category. But these are just sort of the the broad things that we have to look at. So as you can see, there's a crap ton of things that we need to keep in mind when we're dealing with this type of a case. So many things can cause pleural effusion. We are not done after pinpointing it as the cause of respiratory distress. Um, We then have to find the underlying problem. Finding the underlying problem is the only way to ultimately manage the issue. Right. Right. So the first step in a pleural effusion case is going to be performing a thoracocentesis. That is using a needle to drain the abnormal fluid from the pleural space. This is what the radiologist in Daisy's case was suggesting be done as the next step. This procedure serves two purposes. First, it makes the patient feel better, at least temporarily, because the fluid is being drawn off. Now the lungs have room to expand. And it's that restriction of the lungs because the fluid is hanging out and they're taking up space that really causes the majority of the symptoms. The second benefit is that thoracocentesis gives us diagnostic information. So we can look at the type of fluid that's present in the pleural space, and that can often help us understand where to find the underlying problem. Thoracocentesis can also help make underlying pathology on x-rays easier to find. So say you're able to do a thoracic ultrasound, you say, oh crap, this animal has pleural effusion. 
you can go ahead and do thoracocentesis before you even take x-rays at all, because getting that fluid out of the way will help the veterinarian see more. Even if you don't have access to an ultrasound, when pleural effusion is on your list of initial differentials, I would start by taking lateral x-rays first, developing them or looking at them if they're digital first. And if pleural effusion is noted on the lateral views, just stop taking x-rays, go ahead and move to the chest tap, then continue with radiographs once the patient is stable. And this is often helpful because once you remove that fluid, you can see things like chest masses and things like that much better. If the fluid is there, it sort of masks them. Also, it can make your patient more stable so that they're more comfortable while you're positioning them for x-rays and you might be able to get views that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. Thoracocentesis is usually performed with the patient in sternal recumbency. That means uh, laying on the chest with the back towards the ceiling or standing. The procedure can be performed with a butterfly catheter in small patients like cats, but in larger patients, a needle is connected to an extension set and a three-way stopcock and syringe. The area of the chest that's going to be tapped is clipped and scrubbed prior to thoracocentesis, and sterility is maintained throughout the procedure. Oxygen supplementation and light sedation are used on a case-by-case basis. But you have to use caution when you're considering using opiates to sedate the patient just because they have respiratory depressive effects. In thoracocentesis, the needle is inserted at anywhere between the 6th and 10th intercostal space and is advanced off the cranial edge of the rib. Some clinicians prefer to use an over-the-needle catheter to do this, but for big patients, you have to have quite a long catheter, and having one on hand that's long enough to reach the pleural effusion might be an issue in larger patients. I know in most practices, I think like your catheter, typical catheter size you keep in stock is what, like an inch and a half, maybe Mm -hmm. max. So if you've got a 60-pound dog, that might get you like... Mm-hmm. into the subcutaneous fat I've, you know <laughs> i've seen this this occur multiple times it's yeah. like it's not long enough what are we going to do right right so sometimes you got to get a pretty long needle to get there mm-hmm. there are some really good videos online of how to perform this procedure including on veterinary information network so complications of thoracocentesis are not common but they are possible um, those include pneumothorax, hemorrhage, and iatrogenic infection. Um, The risk of pneumothorax is higher in cases in which there is a chronic pleural effusion or fibrosing pleuritis, and you need to try your best to exclude a coagulation disorder as the underlying cause before sticking a needle into the chest. So be sure to question the owner very carefully about any exposure to anticoagulant rodenticides. Coagulopathy is the only direct contraindication for thoracocentesis. It would be awesome to do coagulation times prior to tapping the chest, but as we discussed on the podcast previously, PT and PTT are often not available quickly. So you have to make the best decision depending on the individual situation. And in some cases, the patients are in so much distress that waiting on clotting times is not feasible. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. In a perfect world, we would know the clotting status of every patient before we do a thoracocentesis. But sometimes you you just don't have time for that. You just have to tell the owner, hey, we could collapse the lung. They could bleed from this, but we need to do it because they're going to die. Are are you on board? (laughs) Yes, Mm -hmm. no. Okay, good. We're doing it. Yeah. I don't know. Would it be feasible to do? I don't 
know if they're really done much anymore. It's one of the things they had taught us in school is like um, to do like a sort of a, a crude coagulation test would be like to make a little cut in the gum and see if it clots. Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is like a, a buccal mucosal mm-hmm. uh, clotting yeah. time. I think you know, on a case by case basis, you could make an argument for that. If you're talking about a cat, I think the buccal mucosal bleeding time is going to be pretty tough to get no matter mm-hmm. what. What you could do, though, is like, what if you, you know, what if you just drew some blood into a syringe with, and just mm-hmm. sat there and see if it clotted? I mean, you could do that. Yeah. Certainly looking at the patient, if you're seeing bruising on the patient or if you're seeing petechia, evidence of a platelet problem, then that's going to make you put your foot on the brake a lot more than if the patient isn't really showing any external signs of bleeding. We know the patient hasn't gotten into rat poison, you know. Mm-hmm. Regardless, though, you're going to tell the owner, hey, this is not without complications. It's not without the possibility of complications. They don't happen very often. Knock on wood, this hadn't happened to me before, but it's in the literature. It could happen. I just need to make you aware. What do you want to do mm-hmm. and, and see how they go? Okay. So if we do a thoracocentesis, what types of fluid might we find? And what does the type of fluid tell us about the underlying cause of the effusion? Okay, so there are a number of different types of fluid that we can get from the chest. We're going to classify different effusions by things like the color, the transparency, the total protein level, the cell count, and the types of cells present, and the triglyceride level. So I'm just going to kind of go through the major categories. The first type that we're going to talk about is the pure transudate. Pure transudates are clear colorless, have only a few cells, usually less than about 1,500 cells per microliter, and they have a low protein, usually less than about 1.5 grams per deciliter. Mononuclear cells are the predominant cell type. Usually pure transudates form from decreased oncotic pressure, such as when the patient has a low albumin or hypoalbuminemia. Albumin might become decreased in the body because of things like malnutrition, liver disease, uh, portal vein anomalies, protein-losing nephropathy, uh, you're losing abnormal amounts of protein through the kidney, protein-losing enteropathy, an abnormal amount of protein is being lost through the gut. It's like basically like a really bad type of inflammatory bowel disease. You might see this from vasculitis, which is blood vessel inflammation from malabsorptive disorders, so if you're not absorbing nutrients correctly. If you have extremely large wounds or burns, you might lose protein that way, and that might lead to um, a transudate in the chest. Or we can see this also in congestive heart failure. If a pure transudate becomes chronic, it can transform into a modified transudate over time. In cats, pure transudates are almost always caused by heart failure, hypoproteinemia, or excessive IV fluid administration. When hypoproteinemia is the underlying cause of a pure transudate, you're going to be able to tell based on the blood work. And the serum albumin is usually less than one and a half grams per deciliter. That's very low. And there's usually fluid found in other potential spaces, such as the abdomen, when hypoproteinemia is the cause. The next type of effusion that we might find is a modified transudate. 
Modified transudates have protein concentration of 2.5 to 3.5 grams per deciliter and a cell count between 1,500 and 5,000 per microliter. Cell types that we might see include macrophages, neutrophils, lymphocytes, neoplastic cells, and or eosinophils. Modified transudates are usually due to increased hydrostatic pressure or decreased lymphatic drainage. Some causes of modified transudates include congestive heart failure, neoplasia or cancer, liver disease, kidney disease, lymphatic obstruction, like if there's a mass uh, impacting the flow of lymph fluid, diaphragmatic hernias, pulmonary thromboembolisms or clots in the lung, lung lobe torsion, that's where the lung lobe gets twisted on itself, pericardial effusion, that is fluid in the sac around the heart, or heartworm infection. As a quick aside here, when we're talking about heart failure as a differential diagnosis for the different types of pleural effusion that we might find, for dogs, pleural effusion can occur with just right-sided heart failure. So diseases involving the pulmonary arteries that carry blood from the right side of the heart to the lungs, diseases of the pericardium, which is the sac surrounding the heart, diseases of the pulmonic valve, which is the valve between the right side of the heart and the pulmonary arteries, diseases of the right ventricle, and diseases of the tricuspid valve, which is the valve that separates the right atrium from the right ventricle, and diseases of the right atrium. In cats, though, either right or left-sided heart failure can create pleural effusion. The next type of effusion we might see is an exudate. Exudates have higher protein concentration, usually greater than 3 grams per deciliter, and higher cell counts, usually more than 5,000 per microliter. Fluid exudates might appear turbid, white, yellow, or red. They may be thick and or have a foul odor. Exudates can be septic or non-septic. In septic exudates, degenerative neutrophils are the predominant cell type, and you might even see infectious organisms on a cytology. Exudates can form through increased vascular permeability, decreased lymphatic drainage, or increased lymphatic permeability. Exudates can also be seen with neoplastic or inflammatory diseases. Pneumonia, penetrating chest wounds, lung lobe torsion, pancreatitis, neoplasia, perforation of mediastinal structures, lymphoid or eosinophilic granulomatosis, uremia, and immune-mediated diseases. Feline infectious peritonitis can also cause an exudative pleural effusion in cats. When an exudative effusion is created by an infection in the pleural space, the condition is called a pyothorax. When we have something like a pyothorax going on, we need to put the foot on the gas. These guys need extremely aggressive management, and most of them need at least some surgical intervention, a chest tube, and things like that. Pleural exudates associated with malignancy usually have a low or normal pH, a low glucose, and a low neutrophil count. The next type of effusion that we might encounter is a hemorrhagic effusion, or blood accumulating in the pleural space. It can be diagnosed when the red blood cell count of the fluid in the pleural space approaches that of the peripheral blood. If the hemorrhagic effusion is sudden or acute, then the blood will contain platelets and be able to still clot. If a chronic hemorrhagic effusion is present, the blood will not contain platelets and will not be able to clot. Erythrophagocytosis may also be seen. That is phagocytosis of red blood cells. 
Hemorrhagic effusions can occur due to trauma, neoplasia, bleeding disorders, pulmonary infarcts, lung lobe torsion, heartworm disease, and if the patient has had some type of surgery recently. And finally, a chylus effusion can occur when the pleural space fills with chyle or lymphatic fluid. Chyle has a white, milky color. The triglyceride levels in chyle are higher than the triglyceride levels in serum. The protein content is usually between 2 and 6.5 grams per deciliter, and the cell count is usually less than 10,000 per microliter. The predominant cell type in a chylus effusion is the lymphocyte, but chyle can also contain neutrophils and macrophages. A chylus effusion can occur due to thoracic lymphangiectasia, pericardial effusion, cardiac disease, neoplasia, trauma or rupture of the thoracic duct, and diaphragmatic hernias. Idiopathic chylothorax, which means we just don't know why it happens, has been documented in Afghan hounds, Shiba Inus, and in some purebred cats. There are other types of effusions besides the one that we've mentioned, but they are much less common in the dog and the cat. Some of those include bile effusion, which occurs from rupture of the biliary tree, eosinophilic effusion, and pseudochylus effusion. We're not going to go into those in detail, but I encourage everybody to look those up in case you might encounter them in the future. A sample of the pleural fluid should be sent out for analysis. Occasionally, this will yield a definitive diagnosis. Yeah, so I've actually had a case of adenocarcinoma diagnosed this way before. Essentially, the owner wanted to be pretty conservative, but they at least let me send the fluid out and that the pathologist was able to document that it, it was a neoplastic effusion, and then that gave us our prognosis right off the bat. However, the absence of neoplastic cells on fluid analysis does not rule out a mass as an underlying cause. Right. Yeah, if you don't see cancer cells, that doesn't mean cancer isn't at play. Mm. That's for sure. So after thoracocentesis, fluid will continue to accumulate until we find whatever underlying cause is creating the fluid and address that. So that's really important. A thoracocentesis has benefits, but it doesn't like magically fix the patient for forever or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Depending on the individual case, we might need to consider a uh, chest tube or some other sort of method to serially drain fluid from the chest, something that makes it easier than having to stick them repeatedly. All patients with pleural effusion should be monitored carefully by evaluating respiratory rate and effort, mucous membrane color, heart rate and rhythm, and pulse oximetry. And monitoring should be continuous until the patient is stable. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's check in with the case presentation patient, Daisy. What happened with Daisy? So after the radiographs confirmed the presence of pleural fusion, uh, Daisy's owners consented to a thoracocentesis. And since ultrasound was not available at this clinic, they did a blind thoracocentesis on the right side of the thorax. Uh, since that is the area where the most abundant fluid accumulated based on radiographs. Uh, thoracocentesis revealed the presence of a modified transudate. 100 mLs of, mm-hmm. of the fluid was removed from the right side of the thorax, and the patient tolerated the procedure well and did not require sedation. The patient's respiratory rate and effort returned to normal, and radiographs of the thorax are repeated, but no obvious underlying cause is noted. Blood work shows mildly elevated liver enzymes, but no other abnormalities. Heartworm test is negative, and a sample of the pleural fluid is submitted to an outside lab 
for cytologic testing and a stat request was put on the order. So results are anticipated tomorrow. It's really great that Daisy's symptoms improve so much with the thoracocentesis. And while it's discouraging that in-house testing sort of failed to reveal the underlying cause for the effusion, that's not all that uncommon. Um, Daisy is going to definitely need further testing unless the cytology results reveal a specific cause for the effusion, like cancer cells. So we're kind of in a holding pattern. What is the plan for Daisy in the meantime? The veterinarian in charge of Daisy's case recommends transfer to the local emergency clinic overnight for monitoring. And though Daisy is feeling much better after the thoracocentesis and doesn't require oxygen therapy for now, uh, the veterinarian explains that the fluid will return. And when it does, Daisy will be in need of oxygen therapy again and another thoracocentesis. Uh, The owner wants to know when that will be. And unfortunately, the veterinarian cannot accurately guess how quickly the fluid will return. Yeah, for these cases, I literally tell the owners that the patient might develop clinical signs again in like minutes, hours, days or weeks. And it probably won't take months, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's so relative and it all depends on the underlying cause. I can also say, like, just subjectively, the patient went from seeming fine to being pretty affected in about a five day period of time. So to me, that seems rapid, like rapid mm-hmm. accumulation is happening, you know, but I, I don't know, you know, in Daisy's case, they haven't pinpointed a specific cause yet. So it's really just guessing at that point. Mm-hmm. So it can be really frustrating for everybody involved. <laughs> it can. So let's see, I've had patients that had to be tapped like every eight hours to remain stable And I've also had patients that came in for a tap every like three to four weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's all relative. I know that's not like a satisfying answer, but it is the correct answer. I say that's the only one you got. Right. We don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So Daisy's owners have concerns about Daisy being away from them overnight. Uh, They are also worried how much the ER will cost. Mm -hmm. And since Daisy seemed to have made a huge turnaround after the thoracocentesis, they want to take her home for monitoring. Errol. Okay. Oh, uh, well, that is always a tricky situation. But again, one that is commonly encountered. Owners, I mean, they are right to be concerned about the cost of ER care. It's not inexpensive. Just like if you, a person, has to go to the ER, it's not cheap to provide the level of care that, that patients need. So, you know, Daisy has been stable on room air. We had to give her some oxygen early in her visit, but now, you know, now she's found on room air and she's feeling much better. I mean, there's not really much you can do in this situation because, like, you can't just, like, (laughs) you can't kidnap the dog (laughs) and drive it to the ER, right? Like, that's not an option. So, I mean, ultimately, the owners of the patient are the ones that make the medical decisions. All you can do is give your best advice. And if they don't follow it, you really just her hands are tied, you know, like you, you just can't do anything. Yeah. And I know sometimes it's frustrating because any number of times you can try to get your point across to them that it's dangerous to do this. This is not you, you have a very high chance of maybe losing your dog here mm-hmm. if you choose to do this. And sometimes it does not seem like it's sinking in. Like, all they can see is, like, 
my dog is fixed. I'm going to go home now. And they may not want to hear anything else. So that's where maybe a AMA form might come in handy to cover your butt. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great idea. Basically, AMA means against medical advice. And I kind of think of an AMA form as like a gradient of forms that I might use. A straight up mm-hmm. AMA form would be like what I would pull out of my hat if the owner comes in. Say that say Daisy's owner had come in and seen this veterinarian and the veterinarian had said, holy monkeys, like your dog can't breathe. I need to do some tests. And the owner had said, no, you're not doing anything. I want to take the dog home. For sure, an AMA is going to come out at that point to be like, hey, I need you to sign this form. You can do whatever you want to, but I need you to sign this form that says that I told you what I was worried about. I recommended testing. You don't want to do it. And I have explained to you that your dog could die. And then you keep that. Sometimes AMA forms will alienate a client, too. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful. So... (laughs) Say it was a moderate situation like this one where the owner has listened. They've agreed to some things. I might not call it an AMA form. I might call it a what? Disclosure, uh, you know, like um, something. I would call it something besides AMA because if you pull out the AMA, sometimes these patients will get pissed at you and leave, right? Like it might damage your relationship. So... I might call it an informed consent form, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) or one of the things I really like to do is like mix this in with discharge instructions, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, you know, here is all of the stuff that we have agreed to. Please read it and sign it before you leave. Bye. You know, like that Mm -hmm. way you at least have something that, that documents, like I covered these things with the owner. They took the chance of taking the pet home anyway and then on message boards lately i've been reading a lot about now this is not widespread okay it's not widespread apparently some veterinarians are going to having like cameras in all of their rooms that record every patient interaction because Mm -hmm. you know i mean like it's like pretty inexpensive now to do that and storing those digital files has never been easier like Oh, it's a giant uh, digital file. Who cares? We have like tiny sticks we can carry with us that hold gigabytes of information. Like it's it's mm-hmm. not a big deal anymore. And I thought that was really interesting. I don't work any place that does that. But like, huh, that's something that you can always go back to and be like, oh, OK, so you're telling me I didn't warn you about this. Let me present exhibit a the fucking video file, <laughs> motherfuckers, you know, like, <laughs> sorry. How does that work, though? I mean, do you have to get, do you have to tell them you're being recorded or is there just a sign posted that if they don't like it, then they just go elsewhere? Or uh, I did not research that, but I think the answer is that it depends on the state. Mm. Because, because, because of my true crime background, <laughs> I know that audio recordings vary by state as far as legality in some mm-hmm. Cases, only one party consent is required. So if you, the person, know that you're taping someone else, that's sufficient. But in other states, everyone being recorded has to know. So I I think it would be, a, you would have to research that and talk to your business attorney about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. But apparently some people are doing it. 
So not surprising, especially with all the finger pointing that can uh-huh. go, you know, on both sides. So, well, and again, like I don't I'm not trying to be political right now. OK, but body cam footage, I think, is the same thing of like, here's what mm-hmm. happens. Like, you know what? <laughs> like, let's look at what actually happens and yeah. then decide from there. So video camera video every session, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. It's it's a it's a thing. It's a you know, it's the end of 2021. Like, I think that might just be a modern thing to start thinking about. I mean, if you're walking around in like a city or something, you're on camera anyway, everywhere mm-hmm. you go, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So why not? OK, semi related note. Have you noticed that people will often pull out their phones and record veterinary visits? Um, I wouldn't say I've noticed it often, but I have noticed it happen. Um, I had that happen during a euthanasia that I was kind of disturbed by. Oh, really? Like, first they wanted to do selfies with me. Hmm, that's I mean, maybe slightly weird, but... Uh-huh. And then they wanted to record the entire event. And I don't know, it's just kind of yeah. like, this is odd. Yeah. I mean, people all process and grieve in different ways, but that does seem strange. Yeah. Yep. yep anyway. Very- Okay, so video recording, something maybe question mark? Should you look into it? I don't know. Okay, but so I definitely agree with you, JJ, in this type of case where Daisy's owners really want to take her home, some sort of official documentation needs to be made regarding like, this was not plan A, this was something you came up with and you have declined plan A, please sign here, you know. Never, never a bad idea to CYA. Mm-mm. No, in fact, always a good idea to CYA. <laughs> so. So the veterinarian agreed to hesitantly discharge the patient and draft the discharge instructions, including primary recommendation of hospitalization and the fact that the owner declined this primary recommendation. And the veterinary provided written information about what to watch for overnight, trained the owner how to monitor the resting respiratory rate, and gives instructions to go to the ER overnight if resting respiratory rate is increasing or if any symptoms are returning. And the veterinarian has the owner sign this document and preserves the original in the medical record. The owner is sent home with a copy of the signed document, and a recheck visit is scheduled for the next day. Medications are not started since the underlying cause has not been identified, and the veterinarian doesn't know what they are treating, so there's not a great way to select medications yet. Yeah. I mean, I think that's reasonable. The pet's stable on room air. The owner is committed to monitoring the pet overnight. They understand to go to the ER if the pet's worsening. We got that in writing. And uh, the owner has agreed to return for the recheck tomorrow. So, I mean, I think that's fine. They don't have a diagnosis yet. So not starting medications makes sense. I mean, I I probably wouldn't start medicines in this case yet either, just because we don't know what we're dealing with. Uh, what about starting in diuretic like furosemide? Well, that's a great question. And one uh, that would be probably hotly debated. So <laughs> um, the use of furosemide empirically for pleural effusion has been described, but remains significantly debated. Furosemide might improve pleural effusion a bit if the underlying cause is a heart issue. But if the underlying cause is not heart related, it probably won't have much of an effect. Also, you've got to take the health status of the patient into account. So are they going to become dehydrated on furosemide? You know, what other things can occur? I think it's important to remember that 
not all fluid in the chest is created equal. So pleural effusion, like what we're dealing with in Daisy's case, is different from pulmonary edema, which is fluid inside the lungs. Furosemide is super helpful for pulmonary edema cases. And if that is what had been going on with Daisy, I would ultra prescribe it, like for sure. <laughs> but with pleural effusion, the information we have so far is like, nah, for a case like Daisy's, I probably would not prescribe furosemide at this time. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing so if that's what like you're used to and you super want to do that. But I do think you have to have the conversation with the owner that like, this is empirical therapy. It might not work. There's some side effects that we could create for the patient. And that furosemide isn't some sort of treatment for pleural effusion. It won't fix the issue. So Daisy went home overnight to be monitored. What happened the next day? So the fluid analysis confirmed the presence of a modified transudate, but failed to provide further insight into the cause for the pleural infusion. No neoplastic cells were identified. Yeah, that's frustrating, uh, but not very unusual. How did the patient look like at the recheck appointment? So she didn't go to the ER overnight. The owner did see that the respiratory rate increased from the 20s back up to around 35 overnight. Mm. But the patient didn't seem to be in distress, so they did not go to the ER. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On recheck exam, the patient's respiratory rate and effort are again increased. The patient is again reluctant to move around. Heart sounds are muffled. The owner accepts the recommendation of a repeat thoracocentesis, and today 125 mLs of fluid is removed. Uh, the patient again responded well to the thoracocentesis. The veterinarian shares the results of the fluid analysis with the owner. Further diagnostics are recommended. The patient needs to have an echocardiogram and an ultrasound of the thorax, as well as the abdomen as the next step. These are tests that require transfer to a specialty hospital. The good news is that there's a specialty hospital about an hour away where the patient can have further testing and see an internal medicine specialist. Okay. Sweet. And after considering the options, however, the owners declined this recommendation. Oh. The owners have financial concerns, but they also don't want to do anything major. Okay. They don't want to know if any cancer is present, and if it is, they don't want to treat it. They don't want to do anything that would mean the pet needed to have surgery either. If a heart problem is found, the owner would consider long-term medicine for the patient as long as it did not cost much, but they would not consent to repeated echocardiograms or seeing a cardiologist for diagnosis and monitoring. Hmm. Okay, well, the veterinarian is going to be in a tough place here. Mm -hmm. So these pleural effusion cases are really challenging, and it's not just because so many things can be the underlying cause and because literally all of those underlying things are bad problems, you know. Mm-hmm. But also because a lot of owners have limited funds to identify the cause. I mean, I've been in this exact same situation as a vet several times where the owners, they, <laughs> the owners want the patient to get better. It's not that they don't want to treat the pet. It's that they don't have the means to or the desire to do what it's going to take to treat the pet. And that's the problem because, you know, when we were talking about earlier all of the different things that can cause a pleural effusion and we talked about like the general categories and then when we were talking about the types of transudate we sort of listed here are some of the common things that can cause each one like the one thread that runs through all of those differentials is none of them are good problems to have 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm going to say, like, what's the best case scenario? The best case scenario for plural effusion would be something that is manageable without, I don't know, a thoracotomy, right? Like, like <laughs> so medicine. So, okay, a heart problem. Like, if we have heart disease causing a plural effusion, that's probably the, like, a more manageable situation. Or mm-hmm. what if we had, like, a bacterial pneumonia that then caused a pleural effusion? Okay, more manageable, but that's going to probably be a pyothorax and the dog's going to need a chest tube. So then that means weeks of hospital. You know, so it's like none of them are good. None of them are yeah. good. And nor even, are they like, cheap. do what now? And nor are they cheap. Nor are they inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And it, okay, so, like, Say the patient did get into rat poison and is bleeding from that. Okay, well, that is technically a completely reversible issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've got to diagnose that. We've got to get them on vitamin K. We've got to hospitalize them until their clotting c- times come up to the point where they're safe to go home. They're probably going to need blood products. Like, even that is not inexpensive. So there's like, for an owner who's not like, mentally and emotionally and financially prepared to deal with a major emergency having plural effusion is super inconvenient because Mm -hmm. that's what it takes like it it's this is not there's no there's no potential cause of plural effusion that is going to be a ride off into the sunset waving sort of situation it's it's going to be major stuff no matter what (sighs) (laughs) so anyway uh it's a tough one there are no good things that cause this problem there are just bad things that are on a range of badness and sad face it seems like the owner wants the dreaded magical cure Mm, that doesn't exist that we don't have i definitely want us to talk about this magic wand slash crystal ball situation like the that owners really want us to know everything be able to predict everything and to magically treat everything but i think we're going to need to address that in our next episode so jj what did daisy's owners ultimately decide to do uh they decided to take daisy home and consider their options some more and the veterinary warned them that uh without repeat thoracocentesis daisy will continue to worsen and the veterinarian discussed starting the patient on furosemide as a potential medication for palliation, but is also careful to review the pros and the cons. Uh, the owners declined the furosemide therapy for now, and Daisy is scheduled for a follow-up appointment the following day. However, the owners are a no-show for this appointment. Calls to check on the patient are not returned. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's frustrating, uh, but again, also not uncommon. Do we have any other follow-up? Three days later, the patient presents for reevaluation. The rest in respiratory aid is 45, and the mucous membranes are cyanotic. Uh-oh. The owner requested a thoracocentesis, and the veterinarian agrees because the patient's pretty uncomfortable. Today, they pulled uh, 200 ml of pleural fluid, and following the thoracocentesis, the patient lays down quietly and goes to sleep. Poor thing was tired. <laughs> yeah. And the owner reports this is the first time they've seen the pet asleep in several days. Mm. No shit. Um, <laughs> the veterinarian discusses the case with the owners again, and the owners continue to decline referral for the patient. However, they would like to provide conservative treatment for the patient. The veterinarian advises that there's not a lot of conservative therapies for this type of case, 
repeated thoracocentesis is an ethical gray area for cases in which definitive diagnosis and treatment is not desired. Uh, Some medication can be tried but are not guaranteed to work, and the patient will continue to worsen. Humane euthanasia is discussed, but the owners do not wish to consider that right now. So, pickle. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, these are all really important themes, and we can't appropriately address them in the last few minutes of an episode. So, we are going to pause Daisy's case and pick it up next week with some of these questions about the appropriateness of conservative therapy, hospice care. What is hospice care? Does Daisy's case fit the profile for a patient that is appropriate to provide hospice care for? And all of these sorts of things. We're also going to talk about magic wands and crystal balls. So that brings us to the end of today's episode, and be sure to join us next week for the snack episode where we'll keep going on Daisy's case. Just a reminder that the Alabama Veterinary Technician Association Fall CE meeting is going to be October the 23rd, and it is going to be a virtual meeting. I'm one of the presenters, and I hope to see you there. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media or on Facebook and Instagram at Introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.